You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Have you heard? Sling TV offers the news you love for less. Hey, wait, you look and sound just like me. I am you. I'm the same news programs on Sling TV for less. You mean you're me, but for less money? A lot less. I'm all the favorite news programs and more on Sling TV, starting at just $40 a month. Everything great about me, but for less money? Which makes me greater, don't you think? Get the news you love and more for less. Start Start saving today. Visit Sling.com to see your offer. If you're new to the first degree, a word of warning. When we started the first degree, we were amateur podcasters, so apologies for any sound issues. They're really compelling stories, but the sound definitely gets better around episode 15. So with that being said, turn down your lights. Turn up that anxiety. Because this could happen to you. The first degree. 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 The first degree. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. Hey guys, welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Vanek. I'm sitting across from Alexis Linkletter and next to Billy Jensen, true crime professionals. And I have a question. We have answers. If our podcast becomes an overnight success, am I also a true crime professional? Yes. This is, this is the loophole of like how I, I get say, in. I would say yeah. yes. Yeah. Billy's just kind of looking at me. No, like no, insane. yeah, no. <laughs> you're a professional if you're, if you're if we're making money off of it. You're a professional. I, yeah, but you can make money off of a lot of things that I would not consider somebody a professional. Billy's words say yes, but his eyes say his, no. His, his face is like, I've been doing this for we're two su- decades. We're supposed to be a theater of the mind here. So. <laughs> Whatever. That's my goal in life. Okay. So if you guys have not listened to The First Degree before, we're not your average true crime podcast. We are telling stories of murder, crime, and other beyond belief type of situations through the first person perspective or somebody that is one degree away from these crimes. We're flipping even the most infamous crime on their heads and giving you a brand new perspective and our story today one of us is the person that's one degree away and we're not going to tell you yet no you'll have to see but we will tell you that this story will make you question everything you think you know about the people who are close to you because you can know someone since grade school you can live under the same roof as them sleep in the same bed with them and have no idea who they really are or what they're capable of and hopefully you can all learn something from this one because these people can be all around you yeah and and it's also proof that the american dream isn't always what it what it seems to be that's true. That's, that's scary. Now, where is this? Where is today's case set? So today's case is in Nesconset, New York. Now, I grew up in Westbury, New York, out on Long Island. 
when I needed to purchase a home and I was starting my family, I couldn't afford anything in Nassau County. I had to go out to Suffolk County and wanted to push out more and more, further out, further out into Suffolk County. And I found this wonderful little town called Nisconset. And it is really just like a, a, a beautiful, affluent Suffolk County suburb. Um, it's got middle class, it's got upper class, and it even has, you know, some million dollar, you know, a couple million dollar houses. So when I was there and I was just work, I was working a few jobs. I was at the Village Voice. I was covering Long Island crime stories for the New York Times. And the New York Times would call me up on Saturdays and Sundays because they were always shorthanded. And I would answer the phone and they would say, we got something for you. And I'd say where it is. And they'd say Hicksville. There was a body found in a barrel underneath the house. And I'd say, okay, I'll be there in 20 minutes. I'd go out. I'd interview the people. I would come back to and find a payphone because this is... Spoiler alert, this was before anybody really had cell phones. Oh, and man. you would call and then you would call into what was called rewrite. Now, if you would look at the New York Times back then, you would see the same reporter did a did a story in on the North Fork of Long Island, in Hackensack, New Jersey, and up in Connecticut. And you're like, how the hell did this guy get to all these different places? He didn't. There were hacks like me that were going around doing the reporting, and then they would call in to rewrite. And then this one guy, and it was a Pulitzer Prize winner named Bob McFadden. He was the main guy. He would write all of them down. So I got sent out to do a a uh, stolen monkey from a pet store in the South Shore. And Damn it, this should have been the case of the week. <laughs> yeah, and I found, you know, and it was, it was A, going from the Village Voice to going to the, to the New York Times is great because people actually would invite you in and offer you coffee and things. It was amazing being able to see you from the New York Fancy. Times. But, uh, you know, it was, I, I was out there talking to the people who were, you know, finding the, the, the I found the woman who actually took the, took the monkey uh, within, you know, about two hours of working that story. So it was very just flying on the seat of your pants, very different from the stuff that I even do now, which is more featured uh, type reporting. So that's what I was doing. And I was able to earn enough money doing that and working at the uh, Village Voice that I purchased my first home in Nesconset. One little tidbit about Suffolk County. I don't know, people who like politics. <laughs> Bob Mercer, a renaissance. You said people with $2 million homes. There are billionaires who live in Suffolk County. Really? Oh, yeah. So Bob Mercer, who is part of this whole Facebook leak thing that's happening right now. He's one of the richest guys in the world. He has a house in Suffolk County. He, in fact, had a fundraiser for Donald Trump. Mm. Um, when I was looking up Suffolk County for this story, of course, I Sounds found great. That, you know, <laughs> n- just a few minutes from this, uh, from the story where yeah. it took place. So, um, the, <laughs> yeah. And also you've got, and it's not just the people that are out there on the, on, uh, in the Hamptons, obviously you have Billy Joel has a house out there and Howard right. Stern and all those people. So, mm-hmm. Uh, so this was my American dream. I had bought my first home for $131,000 in Nesconset. Oh and this gosh. was my, I know, and it was, uh, it was, this was my castle and I was building a family and building a home there and all that. So in December of 2007, the police responded to a very concerning 911 call that brought them to this home on this quaint street called Alexander Avenue. And this house was actually only four minutes from my house. Uh, really very close. And the house looks like a farmhouse. It's completely whitewashed. It's got this big front porch with a big backyard. It's very much the kind of place that you would see and say, wow, I would love to be sipping lemonade on that house (laughs) 
in a, in a rocking chair. You know, it's very much the Cracker Barrel esque. If anybody has Cracker Barrels near them, uh, of <laughs> like you know do. what? Yeah, Cracker Barrel esque. Like this is where where I want to be on a Sunday afternoon. Right. And uh, the home was it, it was a single story residence, but it had a big finished basement. And um, as far as the people who lived there, the house belonged to a woman named Martha Watson. She was a 70-year-old grandmother, and she'd been a long-time Nest Concert resident. She's a beloved grandmother, and a bunch of her neighbors actually considered her to be a surrogate grandmother to all of the neighborhood children. And Martha, you know, she was older, but she had a job. She worked part-time at the Smith Haven Mall, which was right down the street from her house. The other inhabitant of the home was Martha's 20-year-old grandson. His name was Matthew Watson. And he had lived with his grandmother for 14 years through most of his grade school. And the two were extremely close. And he graduated from Smithtown High School two years earlier, so in 2005. He was kind of having a difficult time finding his trajectory in life. He didn't really know what he was doing, no direction, played a lot of video games. He didn't have an actual job, right? No, not really. Um, And then he hung out with the same people he did all through high school. He just hadn't branched out or really done much. And many of the states in the United States are grappling with an opioid epidemic, and he dabbled in that as well. So he was just trying to figure his life out. Right. So there's this 911 call that happens, and when the police walk into the house, it is beyond comprehension. It's like an actual, actual nightmare. There's splashes of white paint everywhere, blood everywhere, all over the walls, the floor, the ceiling, the furniture. It's just covered in paint and blood, which is a very strange combination. Very weird. I'm sure they had no idea what was going on. There was blood on the deck, so the outside deck of the house, trailing from the house and into the yard, footprints and blood everywhere, revealing a path of where the person that was responsible for the carnage was walking around. So the police followed these footsteps into the living room, and of course, it led them to a body. So the police walk into the living room, and they see a deceased person up against a table, an end table, against the north wall. And they're face up with their head between the end table and the wall. And over their face, there's a placemat. That's weird. What does that suggest to you guys? It doesn't automatically suggest, I know where you're, I know where you're going with this. I know where you're going with, that, he knew the person. Yeah. And he didn't want the person looking at them in death. So he's not in a bedroom, because usually a, a lot of times this happens in a bedroom, so they'll throw a sheet over it or, or a like pillow, pillow over yeah. or something like that. But, you know, closest <laughs> thing to him was a uh, placemat. I've definitely seen cases, I've definitely been involved with cases where people just don't like having dead people's faces there and then they'll put something over them so, this, and, and they're not related to them right mm-hmm. could it also just be probably that somebody that obviously hasn't killed a person before and it's shocking and i just don't want to see something like that or is there like a psychology behind it that a lot of times it's done from somebody that's close to the victim i think there's both yeah yeah you know i think it's it can you have no idea what you're going to do in that situation until it happens right and if you're there just trying to if you've just gone in a fit of rage and this is the first time that you've killed somebody and you're sitting there and then every time that you're trying to pick up all of your pieces there's a person that's kind of looking at you, looking at you in death, giving you that literal death stare. Right. You know, you might just want to say, I just don't want to see that anymore, and then put something on top of it. Right. So, you know, was it it more of an amateur move than a professional move? Sure, you would say it was an an amateur move. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the placemat didn't stop the police from identifying the victim. (laughs) Shocking. And they were able to quickly determine that it was 70-year-old Martha Watson. 
Neighbors rattled by the murder of a 70-year-old grandmother, Martha Watson, was repeatedly stabbed inside her Wisconsin home. We didn't know what happened at first. It scared me, you know, because it's right across the street. I don't know what's happening in there. You know, there's a lot of young children in the neighborhood. It's a little scary. Who would want to hurt a What could she have possibly done to deserve such a brutal, brutal, awful, brutal death? Yeah. And apparently I, I got the police reports and we've all been looking through them, but it was clear that this was overkill. And I don't know. I mean, she's living with her troubled grandson. Who would want to hurt an old woman? Right. She's just working at a mall and the neighborhood matriarch it just doesn't make any sense to me but well and i feel like from all the interviews that i had read online from people mm-hmm. that knew her like, everybody loved her she had no known enemy so whatever this crime was obviously did not seem to be directed at her no you you think not other unless it was a total random random know, murder attack yeah. but so martha suffered bruising on her right arm puncture marks on her upper leg and abdomen puncture wounds on her neck and throat and she was wearing a gold necklace with a cross and a heart medallion. A yellow ring was found caught in the bathrobe she was wearing, and a gold ring was also caught in her hair. And I guess these rings had fallen off of her when she was being moved by the coroners. And there was also a broken light bulb underneath her shirt, under her back. Which what I does that mean? Maybe a, in a struggle, a lamp fell over and the bulb and she fell on top of it. Yeah, that. something, but I thought that was odd. So then the police is going through the home... And every room just gets darker and more horrific, which is absolutely terrifying. The basement, when they went in, had white paint and bloody handprints all over the walls, all over the counter of the basement. There was a paint can, an open paint can on the counter in the basement. Okay, so this is obviously where all the paint is coming from. What do you think cops think when they're walking into a situation like that? What is the first thing on their mind? Why is there paint involved? I don't know. And I think my instinct would be that this person is trying to conceal fingerprints, maybe with paint, or trying to thinks that there's some chemical that would (laughs) remove DNA. I don't know. I can't speculate. Yeah, it doesn't seem like a. A clear thought. I mean, if they're going in and have we determined yet whether she was sexually assaulted or not? No, no. she wasn't. Yeah. Um, after that, I would just, my first thought would be that there, this was not an organized killer. This is somebody that just went in there and maybe they thought after their fit of rage to try and cover something up. And what's, what's messier than blood? It's paint. <laughs> and coincidentally, I, my, you know, my family business is house painting. So I'm a, yeah, I'm a house painter and I was a house painter. My father was a house painter and I was a house painter all throughout, you know, summers in high school and everything like that. So that's another was connection. Was it you? Could me. this no. paint have come from your... No. Was it Benjamin Moore? Because that's the only, <laughs> the only paint that I would use. So that, that would, would be, be the first thing. quite a connection. Wait, did they, did they discover if the paint, was it mixed in with the blood? Was it after, you know what I mean? In conjunction uh, with. Okay. So it's just all mixed mm-hmm. okay mm-hmm. that's a nightmare yeah so i guess for this part of town this is completely unthinkable i'm sure it's just like any other affluent town in my town growing up the biggest crime ever was maybe that somebody stole a ball from your garage or something yeah no and i'm sure the police did not know what to think especially suburban cops don't deal with this kind of thing regularly so i'm sure it was very perplexing right Suffolk definitely has pockets of, of badness, 
I mean, that's a lot where a lot of the MS-13 troubles that are going on right now on Long Island are happening in Suffolk. So it it wasn't all uh, white picket fences out in Suffolk, but certainly in this area, they hadn't seen something like this for a while. Right. This was also, if anybody that remembers any, you know, true crime stories from Long Island, this is where the Suffolk County sniper was doing a lot of his work around this area in the 347 corridor. The Suffolk County sniper was a guy that was trying to win the love of a stripper and thought he would kill all the people around the stripper in order to set up this idea that there was a serial killer in order to get the stripper. It's convoluted. It's weird. He didn't really do it, but he shot, unfortunately, he shot somebody at the Burger King on 347 from across the street. But there's one other thing that we haven't been telling you. The police have gotten in there, and Martha was not the only victim on that day in December. There was someone else who suffered some pretty substantial injuries during that brutal and just, frankly, bizarre attack. And that was the person who called 911, because it was a male's voice's name on 911, and that's Martha's grandson, Matthew. Police say it was around 2 Saturday afternoon when they got a desperate 911 call for Martha's 20-year-old grandson, Matt Watson. Matt apparently didn't know that his grandmother had been attacked in another room when he called police for help. The caller stated that he had been stabbed by an intruder. When police arrived, they discovered 70-year-old Martha Watson dead from stab wounds. His injuries were severe. He wasn't in a position to uh, observe his grandmother. There are a number of things involved in this case that we don't know, and we're continuing the investigation. Police believe this is not a random crime, but that is little comfort to people who live in the area. A full 48 hours after this murder inside of this home on Alexander Avenue, crime tape remains up, detectives looking for clues. Police have also set up a mobile command post, hoping that someone knows something about what happened. What we do know from court records is that Matt Watson had been arrested earlier this year for heroin possession. And Detective Lieutenant Jack Fitzpatrick says drugs were an issue when referring to the home. Now, Matthew was barely conscious when he was rushed to the hospital, and he had a lot of injuries, really horrific injuries all over his body, but the most glaring injury was a stab wound to the eye. And police had no idea to make of it, but they hoped he could come out of his unconscious state and be able to shed some light on it of all the mayhem that had transpired that day because they have a guy with injuries all over his body with a stab wound to the eye. They have his grandmother on the ground dead. Certainly they weren't thinking the grandma did this and this was a fight to the death and somebody survived. That wasn't what was going on. But who knows? I mean, at this point, maybe these injuries are self-inflicted. Maybe it was a fight between them. They don't really know at this point. I mean, everything was just a disaster. He's rushed to the hospital and luckily for the police, Matthew did recover. He came back from the brink of death and he recounted the story of that day. The evening before was November 30th, 2007, and Matt's girlfriend, her name's Diana Mexdorf, had come over that evening. They spent some time together, they took a nap, and then a couple hours later they woke up. She left around 11 p.m. Matt then stayed up and played video games until 3 or 4 a.m., which must be nice. I haven't been up till 4 a.m. <laughs> yeah, God must knows how long. be nice. Anyways, so he wakes up around 1 p.m., and he says that he got out of bed, he was groggy, he peeled himself out of bed, and as he was walking to the bathroom, he spotted a figure out of the corner of his eye, and then this person charged at him with a butcher knife. Jesus. 
terrifying. The assailant stabbed Matthew in the face, got him with a knife in the right eye. Wait, so he stabbed him the first time in the eye. Yeah. Matthew put his hands up over his face to defend himself, as we all would, and the attacker kept swinging. He was bleeding profusely and was in terrible pain, but the adrenaline kicked in, and he managed to get the knife away from the assailant and fled upstairs to the portion of the house, because Matthew lives in the basement, remember? Right. And as Matt run- runs up the stairs, the assailant takes the can of paint and douses him with it. Odd. Once Matt reaches the upstairs portion of the home, he slammed the door behind him and tried to lock it. But the assailant reached the door right before he could lock it and pushed on it hard, which caused Matthew to slip on the paint and fall to the ground. And then his attacker climbed on top of him and stabbed him several more times as Matthew begged for his life. So then something happens that I think we've all thought about, especially anybody that's ever listened to a true crime podcast or watched a true crime show. But anybody that's ever watched any movie ever has thought about this. Uh, which, which is the decision that Matthew has to make that's coming up. So back to the attack, he's, he's calling out for his grandmother, and his attacker actually responds very coldly, your grandmother isn't home. And Matthew screams out, why are you doing this? And his attacker doesn't say anything. He starts feeling weak from the loss of blood. He feels defeated. He thinks about giving up. And he's got to make a choice now. Do I keep fighting or do I pretend to be dead? And I think this is a choice that we've all thought about if we were in this situation. Right. When would we do that? When would we pretend to be dead? Every war movie, you see it all the time. Mm -hmm. Hoping the attacker would stop stabbing him if he had thought he had finished the job. And obviously, he was already pretty messed up. Right. So he thought, you know, let me give this a shot. How often does... I mean, I I don't know if we know the, the answer to this, but does that work it definitely works. On Crime Watch Daily, we've done two or three where people have pretended to be dead and they've been able to wait it out as the their assailant goes through the house and then runs away. I guess it depends on what kind of crime it is, too. Mm-hmm. If it's some kind of a serial murder or whatever, their goal is to kill and they probably will make sure that they mm-hmm. have killed. Whereas in this situation, this is a senseless kind of act and the person was obviously looking through for something in the house. Mm-hmm. It can be all different types. I think there's there's a couple of instances of serial killers where somebody has pretended to, to be dead from a serial killer. Because a lot of times a serial killer, okay, I got that done, now, now let me go do something else. Right. It's not like they're checking uh, for yeah, it's not, Yeah, exactly. This is an ER. They're not necessarily going to be checking for all that kind of stuff. Right. Mm-hmm. But there's always the chance that if you do pretend... And, and the, per, the person potentially will go overkill. And that was a big, uh, considering what he was in and the condition that he was in and what his grandmother was in. And there's this guy that's chucking paint around. Right. Seems there's certainly frenzy. it could happen mm-hmm. that this, you know, so this was a real risk that he was taking. It right. Was, I mean, talking about this is the ultimate gamble for your life. Yeah. Especially what he did to his grandma. It was complete overkill with a grandma. Well, I don't think he knew that yet. No, I'm just... Well, oh, yeah. just the situation in right. itself. Like, right. obviously, that was mm-hmm. how the attacker was just going all totally. over the place. Totally. So, obviously, that worked because the attacker thought that he killed him. And the assailant got off slowly, looked around, and walked down the stairs. So, that's when Matt saw the opportunity to save himself. He's the last bit of his energy, sprung to his feet, locked the door to the basement, and called 911. So when he was on the phone with the 911 dispatcher, he could hear the guy that was in the house banging and trying to make his way through the door. But thank God he didn't. And when the attacker realized that he was on the phone with the police, he ran away. 
That is so terrifying. Just imagining the banging on the door. Yeah, and he could get in and he would just be cornered again. Oh, my gosh. <clears throat> so the story is about to get worse because the person that attacked Matthew and attacked his grandmother wasn't a stranger. It was somebody that not only he knew, but it was somebody that he was friends with since the fifth grade. And his name was Victor Chunga. Did it say in any of the police reports if he he realized it was Chunga from the moment that he saw him, correct? He stabbed in the eye first. So I think there's a lot of blood. I think throughout the course of the attack, it dawned on him. Because as he described it in his account in the police report, a slender Latino man, and then he started to hear his voice, and then he started to recognize him. Right, put the pieces together. Yeah, and I was reading the reports... Chunga had been at his house a few months ago. They both knew him really well since fifth grade. He'd been coming over a lot. So I'm sure the realization was pretty horrifying. I mean, imagine putting that in your head again, just sort of, you know, somebody from a grade school friend, somebody that you've hung out with, that you continue to hang out with, and all of a sudden they're stabbing you in the eye. Mm-hmm. It's straight out of a movie. It's like it's somebody turned into a zombie, basically. That's insane. It's terrible. So if you're a super busy person and you don't have time to go to the gym, or maybe you just don't even want to go to the gym and work out in front of a bunch of different people, you need to check out the Aloe Moves app. I'm obsessed with this app. So it makes it easy to keep your wellness routine on track because they have everything in one place. There's yoga, there's Pilates, fitness classes, mindfulness, self-care tips, healthy recipes, and so much more. So either you're a beginner or you're an advanced person, Aloe Moves has the flow or class that will fit your schedule. Their classes range from five minutes to an hour, depending on what you're feeling that day. So even if you only have five minutes, you can just get some movement in. I used Allo Moves all during the pandemic. It was amazing. Like I was on my yoga journey and I was obsessed with it. So you can find stress relief with meditations, affirmations, face yoga, gua sha, dry brushing, and journaling for those quiet moments, even if you don't really want to get a workout on. And when it comes to sleep, it's just important as fitness and nutrition, and they've got you covered with Allo Moves. So unlock your personal wellness routine with Allo Moves. Go to allomoves.com. Dot com and use code FIRST for an exclusive 30-day free trial and enjoy 20% off an annual membership. That's allomoves.com, code FIRST, A-L-O-M-O-V-E-S.com, code FIRST. Everybody loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story. So it's going to take you back to the glamour of the 1920s with a diverse cast of characters. I'm really feeling this because... Lex and I both are really like into Gatsby stuff right now. So I am loving the vibe of this game. And you're going to step into the role as June Parker and search for hidden clues to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder. It's perfect for all of the firsties out there. There's mystery, danger, and romance as you search for hidden objects from the parlors of New York to the sidewalks of Paris. And you can customize your very own luxuries a state island. Think expansive gardens and beautiful buildings and collect scraps of information to fill your photo album and learn more about each character. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Okay, so listen, we are busy ladies over here on the first degree. And when I have a moment of free time, I don't want to spend it grocery shopping. I want to spend it rotting on the couch and watching reality TV. And that is why I love Thrive Market. So Thrive Market is a go-to for all of my grocery and household essentials. And the convenience of getting everything online then quickly shipped to my doorstop is such a 
a huge time saver. So Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and sourcing methods. They actually restrict hundreds of ingredients across their food and cleaning categories. So you can go on their website and use their filters to suit any of your lifestyle needs. If you're allergic to a certain ingredient, if you just don't want to have it in your life, that's why Thrive Market is so awesome. So whether you're looking for organic snacks for your kids or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free pantry essentials, you can curate your own shopping experience with just a few clicks. I love this so much because I don't want to read every ingredient when I go to the grocery store. It's so easy to do it online, honestly, when I'm rotting on the couch. So join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order, plus a free $60 gift. Go to thrivemarket.com slash first for 30% off your first order, plus a free $60 gift. That's T-H-R-I-V-E market.com slash first. Thrivemarket.com slash first. Fuel up fast with Factor's restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat whenever you are. No prepping, no cooking, or cleanup needed. There's over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. And there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. Discover a wide variety of easy options for the entire day, like breakfast, midday bites, and more. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Get started today and get after your goals. Plus, Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. For me, I was really struggling to get enough protein. I always do. But Factor's meals are protein-packed, and they're so good. And it's so easy when I'm slammed busy working in the middle of the day to just have lunch right there, not needing to do anything, except heat it up. Head to factormeals.com slash firstdegree50 and use code DEGREE50 to get 50% off. That's code DEGREE50 at factormeals.com slash firstdegree50 to get 50% off. Um, so, I mean, obviously, Matt Nuchunga... Right, mm-hmm. Billy grew up in the well, same. Well, I, gr- I grew up in Westbury, but I lived in Wisconsin. The same that was my, town. Was my, in the same town, I lived in that town, and you know, this is where I was doing all my all my crime stories. But and uh, you know, he lived you know really close to my house. This horrific thing happened really close to my house. But this isn't my story. There's someone else in this room who this story is one degree from, and it's not me. <laughs> It's me. It's my story. Congratulations. Alexis, congratulations. So, yeah, unfortunately, Chunga had been one of my best friends growing up, and this was a total, total shock. We had been friends since ninth grade, and he was this fabulous, flamboyant gay guy, and we would all have sleepovers with him, all the girls and him, and all of our moms were fine with it because it's pretty clear that... He wasn't trying to he get it on try- with you. Exactly. And we were all just really close. Sweet 16s are really big on the East Coast. They're not so big in L.A., but they're very big on the East Coast. And I had a Sweet 16, and they have this ceremony, the candle lighting ceremony. And you give one out of 16 candles to people close to you. And him, I gave him and my other friend Sharice a candle at my party. So they go up and they light a candle, and then you give them kind of a speech about why they're so important to you. So that's how good of a friend he was, which is a very good friend. And we stopped being friends probably in 2005. He started to get hooked on drugs. And I feel like one thing that I do want to say, and Billy can corroborate this, is that I feel like a lot of crime podcasts 
crime shows, they shy away from crime stories that involve drugs because it's not necessarily a highbrow crime or... Right. But I feel like these stories need to be profiled because our country is dealing with an epidemic like we've never seen before in heroin and opioid use. You know, you brought up the thing about the drugs and how a lot of true crime shows won't even cover stories that have to do with drugs. Mm -hmm. They also, you know, we know, know, having worked as true crime producers, we know the the formula and it always starts with everything is great and that's what true crime is true crime is is uh, is turning order back from chaos but it starts with everything is great if you were telling the story even within an hour of a regular tv show that's on that would be on id or oxygen or something like that so you want to you want to hear about how he was the fun guy that was at your sleepovers that you all slept in the same bed together the sweet 16 story with the candles or whatever the hell else you people did out there in suffolk county when i was in that so no that is so true though nobody is gonna have any sort of an attack attachment yeah. to because it's like they're creating a character basically exactly so and, you're and, not gonna... and, and one of the reasons why they don't do drugs is because it's not relatable and everybody what they think is everybody thinks okay you know what that person deserved it because they were doing drugs but because the opioid epidemic is getting so bad right now that everybody knows somebody that has had a drug issue right there's not going to be one person under the age of 50 that's that doesn't have somebody not just like oh that guy from high school i'm talking about somebody close to them Mm -hmm. that hasn't had an opioid issue Yeah, Billy, and you're absolutely right, and we all know how deadly this opioid epidemic has been, and it's been the leading cause of death for individuals under the age of 50 for the last decade now, but let's shift gears really quick and observe the U.S. murder rate, and how does that relate to the opioid epidemic? Well, America saw its murder rate rise for the first time in 10 years, in 2015, 2016, and the first half of 2017. And the connection isn't totally obvious at first glance. Drug and opioid overdoses have been increasing for decades. However, what many people don't realize is that the opioid epidemic really started with prescription drugs, with kids rifling through their parents' medicine cabinets. But starting around 2011, opioid painkiller overdose deaths began to level off, and heroin overdoses and the use of illicit opioids began to increase. And it's this transition into the illicit market that may have helped cause a rise in murders. Experts are starting to think that the spike in murders is directly related to the opioid epidemic. And illegal drug markets are much more violent than legal drug markets. The greater use of illicit opioids came with much more violence, and that's what we're seeing. I mean, even here in this situation, Matt Watson was dealing, and they're saying a lot of these homicides are related to the illicit drug market for opioid dealers. So that's all I have to say about the correlation between the opioid epidemic and the murder spike. But if you don't believe me, here's some proof of this that I collected from all over the country. Murders, shootings, and other assaults are on the rise. The opioid epidemic. Drugs, he says, are at the core of most of the city's violent crime and the reason many cases go unsolved. New numbers show a sharp increase in the most serious violent crimes. Opioids are behind the increase. The biggest rise comes in aggravated assaults. Those committed with firearms in 2017 were up 27%. With other dangerous weapons, they were up more than 40%. If I had to pick one thing, 
Uh, I'd say that the opioid crisis is impacting the crime rates. Yeah, that's right. This crash right here happened in a St. Louis suburb yesterday. This man charged in the wreck, plowing into a family of three, sending them all to the hospital. Police say at the time, the driver high on heroin. St. Louis seeing a huge increase in heroin and related violence. Law enforcement here says Kansas City is next. Compared to last year, armed robberies are up 325%. Assaults involving a gun are up 135%. They found that most of it is drug-related and linked to heroin specifically. Obviously, the opioid epidemic is already the deadliest drug overdose crisis in U.S. history. But the fact that this crisis might also be tied to the first spike in murders in the U.S. for the last decade. And the, that's beyond alarming. And the butterfly effect of this epidemic is way bigger and more far-reaching than we ever could have imagined. And this correlation can affect crimes in a myriad of ways. And I know, Billy, tell me about some of the serial cases you're working on and how this is all connected. So, and that's where a lot of the, you know, these story that I'm still working on now in Columbus, Ohio, it's a buffet for serial killers because all these girls are all addicted to drugs and they're all strung out and they have to work no matter how many serial killers are, are circling the waters there. And they're just like, all right, you know what? The dinner bell's on and I'm able to kill as many people as I want because these girls just keep going out there because they need the money for drugs. Right. So that's what you're seeing within true crime. And hopefully it will become relatable at some point. I'm not sure this uh, is relatable to everyone else, but since I'm one degree away from one of these stories, I certainly find it relatable. So let's get back into uh, this Chunga thing, shall we? So my friendship with Chunga really started to taper off an end when he started to dabble in heroin and dabble in his drug use. And then in 2005, I moved to LA and this happened in 2007. So two years later. So what kind of a, what kind of a person was he when you knew him? Obviously drugs can turn somebody into something completely differently, but what was his? So it's really interesting. He was at the time I thought he was sweet, but looking back, there was something off. He was really mean not to you if he was your friend, but really mean. He would make up rumors about you. A lot of stealing. I got in trouble for stealing when I was like 13. Everybody but this did. was older and almost compulsive from department stores. Bringing like pliers to pull off security tags off expenses. Like dangerous stealing that could actually get you in trouble. He made up a pretty terrible rumor about me in ninth grade, but I could never prove that it was him, but I was told it was him. But yeah, he was allegedly one of my best friends, but you put up with that kind of stuff in high school. Yeah, when you're younger. In Smithtown High School, where I went, people are particularly mean. I don't know. I couldn't tell you in one sitting all the horrible things that bullies did to me, but he was mean. <laughs> he was so sweet, but he was mean. I love that's it's really conflicting because it was it was very in, in retrospect it's a little sociopathic some of the stuff that he would do. What I want to say too is that looking back on this, there were things about him that are so confusing because I remember his brother has a, had a baby still has a baby but now you know she's much older but he loved his niece obsessed with babies wanted to be a math teacher he was truly two people because then he would do really kind amazing things for you so I don't want to take away from his redeemable qualities but clearly the dark side won here I'm still very conflicted and I've done a million shows on on murder and part of my job is I find the interesting stories that I want to make shows about or episodes about or podcasts about and then generally you reach out to the people to see 
if they're willing to talk to you and be involved in whatever show you're trying to put together. And in this situation, when it was a story involving people I knew, I wasn't able to do it. I have all these people as friends on Facebook, and I wanted to reach out to them to see if they would talk to me about this episode. And it was too weird and too hard. This this got very real for me really fast. That's the really weird thing about being one degree away from these situations. There's no longer a divide between you and the monster or you and the monstrous act. It is very surreal. You know these people while they're still human before they become monsters, before a new narrative is chosen for them. And in this story, there's a new narrative for Matt. There's a new narrative for Martha Watson. There's a new narrative for Chunga, monster, victim. These evil people are multifaceted and so are good people. And it just makes you really get introspective and examine and take stock of your relationships and the people you know, which is the point of this podcast. I have a question about, this is not directly related to what we're just talking about, but when we're talking about people not covering the drug Mm -hmm. cases, do you guys think, obviously he had some darkness in him. You never are going to think that somebody is capable of murder. That is just so incomprehensible to a normal everyday person. So do you think that a drug like heroin could turn anybody into becoming that type of a monster or does it does it take some sort of a maybe a bit sociopathic i think it exacerbated something that was already there yeah because he was very devious but likable i don't know how to explain it where if it wasn't focused at you it was funny and at high school you don't have the capacity to look deeper into a behavior wow that is really you're a sociopath if you can do X, Y, Z. I didn't have the ability to do that at that point, but I do now. And when I talk to my friends about this, we all now say, I guess in retrospect, I can see it happening. Yeah. Well, let's get into this. Matthew Watson was dabbling in heroin himself, and it had been rumored to be dealing. And obviously, Chunga, in some state of withdrawal or state of hyper-focus on getting heroin, decided to break into Matt's house, his friend. Because he wasn't, like, high at the time of the murder, right? Well, I read his confession, and he says he wasn't. He said he had used the, the day night before. before. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, I, I'm sorry that this happened to Matt, and I'm sure he lives has to live with this every day, but he lured this person into his grandmother's house and his grandmother i think he has familial problems which is why his grandma stepped in as the primary caretaker but this woman was kind enough to house him for 14 years and he opened this window for this kind of crime to happen it's probably not the right place to be dealing drugs if you're living with your grandma right and again these are 20 year olds your brain isn't fully developed till you're 26 i understand but matthew still has his life and i knew matt in high school but not well we never talked but we were all kind of in the same general circle so i don't know him and i'm sure he's a nice person but i feel terribly for his grandmother right so basically what's happened since with chunga i kind of followed this he was given 35 years to life i have a question so did they just they knew immediately it was him right when they talked to matthew right after they found out it was him they went to his parents house and they had learned that on the day of the murder Chunga had stolen, we all call him Chunga, by the way, we never called him Victor, but he'd stolen his dad's car and was gone for a few hours and came back covered in paint and had said he had been beaten up by some kids. 
which is odd. But just his, parents were, his parents were really pissed. And I'm sure his parents knew that he was dealing with some sort of addiction. But yeah, he kind of tried to resume his life. And a few days later, uh, the cops picked him up outside of a convenience store at a nearby strip mall. Right. And he confessed pretty quickly. He was sentenced to 35 years to life. And there's been no updates media wise, except I was able to find that there's this program for inmates a writing program or a writing contest and he won some honorable mention for a memoir he wrote called in my own time about the murder i have no idea all of them were available you could click on it and read it and not his and i was just like damn it but he's written letters to to rita who jack knows is a friend of mine he's written letters to a number of the people involved in this story yeah, and I guess he sent Rita a Facebook message. We're not sure where he got Facebook access, which is super odd. But don't some inmates have Facebook and then like internet access? They're not supposed to, but they um, somehow do. Yeah, I mean there were, there was actually big issues in some of the southern states, and they were trying to make it a, a bigger violation if they went on Facebook. Uh, How do you even get on Facebook? Um, there's a, there's going to be computers there. You oh. know, obviously there's computers in every jail, and it's just a matter of just slipping the guard a few bucks or mm. doing something. Um, I do want to talk about something really odd that happened in the weeks leading up to the murder that I didn't know until I got these police documents. Yeah. And it involves Chunga's best friend at the time, Sharice. So Sharice, obviously the other girl I gave a candle to out my sweet 16, was a friend of mine. And she, I guess one night went to work. She was, I think, bartending or working at night at the time. And her dad, when she got home, said, I think someone tried to break into your room. And they looked around and they couldn't really find any signs of that, but that's what he thought he heard. And then a few days later, the dad hears something again, and they see a ladder up against the home to Sharice's window. And they go around and look outside, and they find a set of keys. And the dad shows them to Sharice, and she recognizes them as being her best friend's keys. So she's fuming. She also notices money's missing from her room. And this is her best friend. So and he climbed up to her room stole some of her shit stole money from his best friends and this is right before this happened yeah and she decides to wait a couple days and this is per her written account in the police documents i'm not making this up then she calls him and confronts him he starts crying and asks her to meet him in front of his house she does and she confronts him further and he starts crying and sobbing saying he has cancer and that no one including his family will help him pay for treatment, which oh, is God. why he was forced to steal. Now, this isn't true. Chunga did complete actual bullshit. Actual bullshit. And it just shows, I don't know if it's desperation. I don't know if his withdrawal was that crazy, but like he was doing these wild things. And Chunga, I have his confession in front of me and he basically lays out well, he wanted fine drugs. He broke into the house. He confronted, he saw Martha in the house. She says, what are you doing here? He says, I got in through that door, points to a door. I have a key. She's using a walker. Wait, she had a key. He had a key to Matt's house? She, oh. uh, he lied. And she didn't believe him, and she starts getting really loud. Then he pushes her and tries to throw a blanket on her, and she continues to scream. He sees a knife on the table, and that's when this whole thing starts. And I don't know at what point he decided to do this, or... I know. I wonder if there wasn't a knife on the table, if, if it was just a very situational thing. I don't know, but the really sad thing is, and it even hurts me to say this, but... She wasn't supposed to be home that day. She was supposed to be at her job at the mall, but she just had knee surgery and she was recovering. 
and she had all these pins in her knee. It's really awful. It's awful. It's yeah. like wrong place, wrong time. Exactly. So he d- he says this. I I can't hear his voice in this confession, but he's very matter of fact. And he knew the moment she was dead, and he still decided to go downstairs and, with a knife, confront his friends in fifth grade. So I can't speculate as to mind frame. You two are welcome to, but this is beyond me. (laughs) Well, obviously, the first mind frame is what was his motivation? He was trying to get Drugs. drugs. And you either go and try to get money, you try to get drugs. He knew or th- or thought he knew that there were drugs in the house and he was going to do everything he could because he was addicted in order to get the drugs. The next question is, and as sane, rational people who are not addicted to drugs, we're thinking, well, why wouldn't you just tie up the grandma or punch the grandma? You know, why would you actually go and kill the grandma? But we can't put ourselves in that position because we have no idea what those chemicals are doing in his body and what his frame of mind is. Right. The one thing I will say that I think is really interesting is that there seems to be a familiarity component here where the people he targets, he targeted his best friends. Yeah, it's everybody that he knows. Yeah, it would strike me as someone would want to do the opposite of that why would you does he have no remorse for what he's doing does he feel no guilt for what he's doing that's a whole nother thing well i don't have police documents to support this but i remember hearing at the time when he was in custody he went on suicide watch uh, because he had tried to kill himself and i think with a clear mind now he wants to i was reading some reports speak to prisoners about the dangers of heroin and speak to kids who are getting in trouble and i think now he's clear-headed and probably can't believe what he did now you said that you had taken a look at the confession do you have it with you yeah can you read a little bit of it very hard to read it's very illegible but um this is he's speaking about the day of and he said i knew that watson everyone called him watson matt watson would be home and his bedroom was downstairs i walked to the back of the house and remove the screen from the window to Watson's old bedroom. I knew he always kept the window unlocked. I opened the window and went inside, and then I locked the window behind me. When I got to the living room, I saw his grandmother. She was standing right behind me. I saw a walker right next to her. I'm not sure if she was using it. She asked me how I got in. I told her I had to wake Watson up, and I came in through the door that I had a key to. She didn't believe me, and she started getting loud. I pushed her to the floor, and she went down. I got a blanket, and I tried to wrap her in it to keep her quiet. But she resisted and started scratching my hands and face. And I tried to put a towel over her face, but that didn't work either. She was screaming at me, and that's when I saw the knife on the dining room table. I told her to shut up, and I stabbed her in the neck many, many times. She was lying down on the floor when this happened. She was still fighting back when I stabbed more times. I can't remember on what part of her body. I stabbed her everywhere except her for her neck. I put a little towel on her face, and she started, I don't know if it says twitching. It, it's really bad handwriting, and I knew she was dead. I went into the bathroom and washed her blood off of my hands. I then went downstairs because I knew that Watson was there. I grabbed a larger knife from the kitchen, and I took it with me. When I went downstairs, I saw a can of white paint, And I opened it. I wanted to blind Watson with it so he wouldn't recognize me. His bedroom door was locked and I couldn't get in, so I waited for him to come out. At some point, Watson came out of his room. I hid in the kitchen downstairs because the the finished basement had its own kitchen. And he went to the downstairs bathroom. When he came out of the bathroom, I had the knife in my hands. I threw the paint at him, but it didn't get in his eyes. I shoved him 
and we started a fight. And then I stabbed Watson in the eye area. Now, you're reading that, obviously, because uh, you were talking about the handwriting and how the handwriting is bad. Is that his handwriting? Yeah. Yes. And that sounds like a rational guy with a rational explanation for a, a horrific act, but he was... Well, it's just very, very matter-of-fact. Yeah, like very, very matter-of-fact, very this. much like, all right, and then the questions that we were saying that we would all do as, as rational people without a drug problem is, oh, you know, why didn't he just smother her or something along those lines? It looks like he tried to. Right. She was screaming so much. He's thinking, I need to get the drugs. Matt could come up and find me doing this, and then... That's going to prohibit me from getting the drug, so I'm going to have to stab her. That's what was going through his mind. And then, you know, my question is from reading that is that he wanted to blind Matt. Mm-hmm. Did he want to blind him and then kill him? Or did he want to blind him and just so he wouldn't see him and then get the drugs? You know, and he talks about here at the end of it is the last time I used heroin prior to this incident was the day before. I didn't use any that day, and I wasn't high at the time. My intention was just to steal the drugs at Watson's. But I was seen, and I was scared he'd be able to identify me, so that's why I tried to kill them. And... Oh my God, it's the most ass-backwards thing. No, and I talked to Rita about this, my best friend, and she... We're still sick over it. If you saw us all in a room sitting together, you'd think we were all the same caliber of person. Yeah, they're all from a nice area, nice parents. It just... How do we all turn out so well? Rita's a dentist. I have a cool kind of job. (laughs) It's like, how do some of us turn out that way and some of us turn out this way? I don't know. Right. And I don't, you know... Have you had a reunion yet? Like a like an actual reunion? Yeah. We had had our 10-year reunion last summer. And what was that like? It was fun. (laughs) I I can't believe you even went. I I didn't even know what happened. I I went to high school with um, Alana Glazer from Broad City. Oh, yeah. I forgot how much you were excited about that. Oh, come on. She's cool, Jack. And she was our uh, student council president and the valedictorian, and she planned our reunion, and it was fun. Obviously, Chunga (laughs) did did not go. Chunga did not go. Did any of you talk about Chunga at all? No, but no. Did Matt go, or was Matt in your class? He was in my class. I didn't even notice. No, I didn't think about it. I will say, I think I told you this. My space was still at the cool, still cool at this time, and I had a million pictures up with him. And people started to send me death threats. Take that, take these pictures down. No, I didn't check face MySpace anymore. Right. So I took them down, but I have them, and uh, we're gonna put all these police reports. Well, some of them, some of the good ones, and I've got a bunch of pictures I can throw. Yeah, up we there should too. put them on our website. Yeah. So t- look for those if you want to see them. Well, I was gonna say when I was looking up Chunga's name, and you know all these different police reports and articles were coming up there was one that had turned into a vicious argument of comments i saw that one too yeah of people being talking about a bunch of different things from racism to matt was a drug user too he deserves to be in jail why did he not get tried everybody going back and forth Mm -hmm. i don't know there was a lot and it was no and there's a lot to argue over right i'm sure they feel much differently today than they did then i mean a number of years have passed you can blame heroin, but not everyone who does heroin hurts people. Yeah, yeah, so I would not go as far to say that, but I will say heroin lured him there. Right. And that's how Martha lost her life, which is terrible. Yeah. Did his parents, was he stealing from his parents first? Because usually that's the progression, is that you're going to start stealing from people that are around you. You would go to your parents, you'd start stealing from mom's wallet, et cetera, know where your dad hides yeah, It's always his like money. a little progression. And then it would go to maybe the friends, and then it would go to, all right, the drug dealers. So um, His dad made a statement too, right? Through a translator. Yeah. Uh, so they're, they were Peruvian 
Um, they were made a great life for their kids. And, but I think beyond the statement, no one really knows. He didn't, they didn't speak English well. So yeah. um, presumably, but I don't know. Okay. I feel bad. And I, I heard, I don't know if this is true, but I heard that allegedly. during, allegedly <laughs> during the court proceedings, he had no support. He did not have From family. any of his family. No. Could you? I don't know. I, I mean, don't know that my parents would support me through something this senseless. Penis, yeah. Yeah. And I have one last question, I guess, about how... So he obviously confessed. Mm-hmm. And so he took a plea deal, correct? Mm-hmm. What... Well, he pled guilty. Okay. Yeah. So... Uh, did it, he not Did he not take a plea deal, though? I mean, did he... He got 35 to life. So what... Okay, so... If, he confessed right away. It's not like he was playing hardball. Right. Because right. Matt recognized... There, the jig yeah. was kind of... But I do have one... Oh, I forgot to tell you guys one story about my friend Lisa. So... Matt was in the hospital, and Lisa goes to visit him, mm-hmm. right? And Matt Watson says it was Chunga to her. And she's best friends with Chunga, too. So she's terrified, and everyone's in shock. And she goes home, and Chunga calls her. And was like, Wait, oh. this is before he got caught? Yeah, before the arrest. Oh, God. Chunga didn't know if Matt was still alive or not. And he's like, you went to visit Matt? And Lisa said, yeah. And he, he's like, well, was he conscious? And Lisa lied and was like, no. And Chunga was like, so he didn't say anything. And Lisa said no. And Chunga was like, well, I'm going to come over. I want to talk to you about it. Oh, hell And Lisa no. was like, no. And said that she was busy and not going to be home. But like, slept with her parents until he was arrested. Because she said he sounded crazy. Yeah. Lisa's one of his best friends. Chunga just murdered a close friend. No one really knew what he was going to do yeah, at what this he time. Was capable of. Yeah. Yeah. And what do you do in that situation, too, when you, you're realizing that your friend just said your other friend tried to kill him? And what do you do? What do you do? And with then that? your other, and then fr- your other friend calls you up, up with you. and trying to meet up with you. That's terrifying. <laughs> God. So yeah, guys, this is my first degree story, and <laughs> I'm not thrilled about the drug component because I've been programmed not to want to. But I do think these stories need more attention. They and need to be told. Most of these sensational stories you see on the news or in the media have a drug component that they just don't broadcast it. And I think, as far as cautionary tales go. Hiding the drug component does not do anyone any favors. People need to know about this. It helps people deter people from drugs and help spot red flags. Help could have stopped this, I, I think. I don't know. Right. What do you guys think? I don't, I don't know. If it wasn't this thing, potentially it could have been something else. Yeah. You know? But definitely that's what, that's what kicked it into high gear. Mm-hmm. And you know that's the reason why we decided to do this podcast. And you know, there's a million podcasts out there. But it's the idea that that these are all every murderer is somebody's friend at some point, and you all have them. Every every listener that's listening out there has some has a story like this, and that's why we want to tell them because it's a, such a unique perspective that nobody knows what they would do. It's very easy to be listening to a podcast where you're completely separated from it, or watching mm-hmm. a true crime show where uh, you're so separated from from the action or the emotions. But if you put yourself right into it, you're going to be conflicted right so i mean i guess we'll sign off on most people do are connected to something like this and we want to hear your stories so if you guys have a stranger than fiction story that you want us to tell please email us at hello at the first degree podcast.com make sure to subscribe to our podcast follow us on instagram at the first degree at alexis Linkletter, at billy jensen and at jack bannock and keep your friends close but not that close 
Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen posed that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts.